0: Welcome to Penumbra Cast, The Other Scene. I'm Fernanda Negrete, Director of the Center for the Study of Psychoanalysis and Culture at the State University of New York at Buffalo. My interview today is with Dr. Patricia Novoa-Ortega. And this is the English translation to an episode that was originally recorded in Spanish. Since the original version of this interview was recorded, Hurricane Fiona came through and seriously impacted the communities that are the focus of Patricia Novoa Ortega's project of the Clínica Legal Psicológica. It set back the progress that had been made in these places since, as it is mentioned in the interview, They are, in many instances, built on filled mangrove swamps, but the place belongs to the water, which takes over again under extreme weather conditions. The effects of Fiona reached even this podcast episode, since Wi-Fi connections were affected by Fiona when we had planned to record the English translation. Today with me, Marietta Fernandez is doing the translation into English. I would like to start our conversation with your definition, psychoanalysis. So the idea is this, to try to listen to this definition as an introduction to your recent project. But of course, we'll go much deeper into that later on.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I am very happy to participate in this podcast. For me, psychoanalysis, we could say four things, which really come from my experience in analysis. It is an intimate experience. It isn't a theory. One doesn't arrive at analysis by learning. It is a process. I see it as a kind of research into one's life. This search or research process of questions that are asked allows one to enter into dimensions that one did not know about oneself. But the key is that these dimensions are operating in oneself. One is not aware of it at first, but they operate in oneself. I also look at it as a prolonged and deep process. In this process, I do not do alone. I do it with the psychoanalyst whose main function, as I have said before, is to listen and to provoke that which has not had a space or place in the life of an individual, to emerge in that space so that it can be verbalized, a palabra, according to the framework that we belong to uh, to in Quebec so that the unconscious might surge up. I also see that it isn't fun at all. It is the space that is open in every session. I feel that analysis is a special place because in the sphere of the social environment, sphere of reality, this space does not exist. Whereas in that place, one is able to bring in a certain manner that which is irrational, incoherent, those affects that don't belong in another place. So one isn't embarrassed about this troubling affects, about exposing the anguish that one has. I think also that that which is inscribed in one through phrases or discourses of others, family, friends, partners, As one is growing up, one begins to identify with these discourses and in some manner, without knowing it, because it isn't something one can be conscious of, this identification in some manner settles into a way of being and living, perhaps a harmful one. And this generates suffering. In my case, I have seen how being a good professional, how being a good academic has sometimes led me to overwork and my body becomes injured in this. And as Lucy says, a lot of the time, it is the symptoms that speaks before the word. And lastly, I think that I can offer as a response to that question in um, psychoanalytic terms is that it is a setting to be able to work with a symptom. I have always felt this way. And from my analytic experience and my process of working with the clinic, one can see, one can realize the changes in oneself that Aaron learned in the session, it doesn't work that way. It is through the work that is done in session and what has an effect after the session that we become able to make those changes in ourselves.
0: Yeah, that's terrific. And um, I'm really interested in how you highlight analysis as a space apart from these demands that one can have or feel regarding, for instance, being a good professional or being a good academic. And, you know, there's something else that doesn't have anything to do with being good or bad exactly.
1: But whatever we might think about these demands or this persona we have adopted the affect continues to operate in oneself, no? The fact that he did insist is what brought me to that.
0: That's true. And, you know, there's a lot that you are saying in here. I feel like we could stay with this question for a long time, but maybe we can come back to some of these points by way of our conversation on the Clinica Legal Psicologica. Could you tell us what it is? Well,
1: I believe it is a project that we founded with Belines Ramos who is a sociologist and lawyer, and I am a psychologist and researcher. And I've always thought of myself as a person who in training in psychoanalysis. I'm not a psychoanalyst per se, but a person who is interested in my own psychoanalytic training with a particular interest for interdisciplinary work. I have always been flirting with uh, a, a word that may work or may not, wanting to be between separate disciplines. So between anthropology, sociology, which are disciplines that allow me, using an expression from Ana Maria Fernandez, the Argentine psychoanalyst, uh, to undiscipline myself, desdisciplinarme, from the discipline of psychology. So Belines and I founded the clinic, whose purpose is to foster the opening of a space in the community to accompany the residents of the community legally. Psychologically, social. When I say socially, I refer to the social link. These communities have been marginalized and impoverished economically. As Judy Butler says, they are communities that do not matter in the sense in which Butler speaks of bodies that do not matter. For the most part, the communities that we work with are made up of immigrants, residents who are visibly darker skinned, people that live in a higher degree of precariousness. And we come to the communities after climatic disasters have occurred, like hurricanes, earthquakes. And I want to be very precise with my meaning here that these are social disasters and not just natural disasters. A lot of the context of risk and the precarity and the poverty come before that when at a category five, like Maria, and that water that flooded. The communities like the one in San Isidro, those communities have been abandoned by the state much earlier. So that puts the communities at risk to begin. But after the events occur, Hurricane Maria, the earthquakes in Puerto Rico, the response of the government is inefficient, mediocre, and moreover creates the disaster. They make the people suffer much more because the attention that they need immediately, the government does not provide. Therefore what we do is accompany them and support them in a sustained manner in the process of recovery from this disaster and also to give them support and we give them strength for the project that they are working that they had before the natural disasters such as community projects that they really want to work on self directed projects such as community based centers for responding to hurricanes Community gardens. Each one has their one products of those communities. Each community has the project, and that project, if they are interested, if they want our help to give them support for this work, then we also accompany them in their project with legal support. Above all, in the very particular manner of making something legal through community advocacy and also community social work. So this is the project focus.
0: Yes. And nonetheless, this community legal support seems to also have a clinical dimension, or rather it contains a psychological side, we can say.
1: Yes, exactly. There are three parts, right? The psychological, that someone brings their story to the clinic. That's the psychoanalytic part. The legal part, from there we work on the particular manners of advocacy. It isn't a traditional lawyer who goes to represent them in the courts. It is another way to do legal work, and I can explain later. And community work, community social work, which is to give support to community projects in each one of those communities which have been affected. So these three components interlink with each other in the work that we do after these events happen.
0: Wow, that's amazing. I also love how you insist on the aspect of these disasters as socio-environmental, and you explain that very clearly. When you started to explain it, I thought that it was going to be more in the direction of what is causing these natural disasters, which result in destroying the communities where there are societies of human beings, people trying to survive, come from how we have handled our natural resources. Or rather, that we have a responsibility toward the environment. But what you are saying, additionally, you're signaling other factors from the state that cause socio-environmental disaster, which are super important also.
1: Not only the government, and taking up again what I say about this inquiry, this soul searching into why did this happen? How have things gotten to this point? It's also carried out here. And we talk about natural resources. However, that is not the first thing that one encounters upon entering into a scene of this, of a disaster, right? The context is different. It has to do with losses, with means of existence. And there is where, in the context, the door that the community opens is found because it is really the community which does allow us to be, and we open a space for this
0: Right, of course. So this project has existed since 2017?
1: Yes, I started my inquiry. In 2017, uh, when Maria came, I, I couldn't be in my house. I had a urge to go out and to do something, right? With everything that I was living through, with everything that I had seen in the American press, coincidentally, and what I was living through, to grapple with the immediate concerns where I live, I decided to go to the Health Brigade. With doctors, psychologists, with nurses from different communities. And from there, I saw communities extremely affected by the hurricane in San Isidro, a neighborhood in Puerto Rico of people who were rescued from the earthquake. Of all, of all the neighborhoods that I saw, I went to Utuado, I went to Macau, I went to various sites. I decided to stay in San Isidro to be able to do sustained work documenting. I examine how this community through actions, individuals, as well as collective, address the effects of Maria and what were its psychosocial effects. I saw what they were going up against. And from that process of documentation, the results of an entire year of accompaniment and ethnographic work are what allow me to do something. Then I came to found, in 2018, the clinic. Thinking about what you just said on the environment, for they were bodies of water, the area was mangrove. And they began to fill it in, in many, many parts of Puerto Rico. In fact, the governors, the mayors, part of what they promoted was the filling in of bodies of water in order to settle the people in distant communities. In parts of San Juan, the Fanguito community, The community in Santorce was mangrove. And then they felled it But obviously that area belongs to a body of water. So in this way, most people's houses and dwellings were completely destroyed. Not necessarily only the ones that weren't anchored because that was poor infrastructure. Many of the septic systems were poorly installed and the government knew this. There wasn't a system of aqueducts or water tanks. There's a lack of drainage dishes for the water to flow away. So the people there confronted a flood of about 15 feet of water, contaminated water, and that brought with it as a consequence that many people got sick with skin conditions, chronic health conditions were exacerbated. It brought death not only because of the immediate effects of Maria, but actually because as it happened, uh, 4,645 people, which is an estimate of the deaths after Maria, came because of the collapse of the health system. The hospitals shut down, the doctor's offices closed because of a lack of electricity, because of a structural damage, so people lost their access to health services. I documented that many people that died there in the community in the process of picking up the wreckage because the water was contaminated and because of the increase in mosquitoes people began to die of dengue that's from rat urine so it was a dismal a scenario that the people are fighting being left in a high risk zone. And then came the discriminatory treatment from the federal government. There was a lot of discrimination there. Seeing the people, the inspectors that came to examine them, the houses, they talked to them in English, knowing that they didn't understand. So in this way, all of this process of being in a moment with a great real fragility and vulnerability, you add to this discriminatory treatment. They did not receive economic assistance, financial assistance at that time. Or if they did, they received very little in comparison with the damages. This has been documented in the press. This role, which is so disgusting that the federal government, FEMA, in the mediocre response to Maria in comparison to responses in Texas and Florida. So in this, in those actions that I saw among those residents, there were collective actions that were directed towards preserving life. And us in Puerto Rico, it is seen in various communities that people save the people. So many people worked according to this principle of life, taking care of others. People started making communal soup kitchens to feed the residents. They gathered money to buy light bulbs, to install electricity. They took neighbors into their home because they had lost their homes. They developed centers informally in order to distribute the funds that they received. Because there were many foundations and many movements and organizations that brought sustenance, food, water, and the leaders went about channeling all this aid. So in this way, I was surprised to see so much potential, so much potential in the face of this disaster, this institutional collapse. We saw how the government aid did not arrive. From there, I recognized, right, from this knowledge, how those same neighbors made and shared. I remember one that made, created a photo album of their loss as a manner of doing the work for FEMA when they arrived to make the process of inspection easier. So, this knowledge of how to organize to confront institutional difficulties that they were up against also surprised me at how they socialized this knowledge or these strategies, right? to combat this governmental insensibility. So with all of this, I said, I can't do anything. This brings me to the central theme. What do I do with all of this, right? And what I did with all of this was, together with the leaders of that neighborhood, was to found the Clinica Legal Psicologica.
0: Wow, this is really moving and such a good model for living in communities. No, I just think that
1: from there, not only my ethical position of doing something to help with what I was seeing for the people, but also my subject of the quest, or you might say, I felt that I needed to make something that didn't exist. I needed to create something. It came. The creation of the clinical legal psychologica arose because it is a response in some manner to what I was looking at. And it is like a form of continuing to accompany them through diverse structures, which we call clinical, to be able to continue sustaining the work there. So continuing the framework of the Freudian School of Quebec to think about and form something which was not exist. That's where the desire comes from. He materializes a bit uh, that unconscious desire. That's what drove me. And it's continuing for four years, five years already.
0: That's also something remarkable about what you've been doing. I'm so glad to be able to talk to you about what you started, but doing so four or five years later, because it brings a certain weight to it, you know, that consistency and that endurance seems to signal something. I love that you mention the subject of the quest of unconscious desire, or to know a little bit more about how the legal aspect of the clinic operates. Although we're going to go a lot deeper into the, the psychoanalytic aspect. But I'm drawn to you saying how the legal dimension of the project isn't what one usually imagines. Could you please tell us a little bit more?
1: The singularities of the clinic, in the sense, because the co-founder, Belines Ramos, uses a methodology of active participatory research, which is literally all the processes that are brought on after a disaster are going to involve the residents, the council. To these interlinked com- committees, To work with them on the situations which arrive like this one. And it has the goal, moreover, of making a change in people's circumstances which arose, uh, which uh, affect them, and that led to them uh, being in the situation that they are in. So it promotes in this legal work that this recovery be a just recovery, which means that the communities have the right to recovery and mitigation plans developed by the government to correspond to their desire, to respond to their needs. It is not a relationship where the state over there does something, decides it, and then comes over here and says, this is what you all have to do. No, it's the other way around. Part of the accompaniment consists in making sure that the residents know that they have rights, that they can make a claim, that they can prepare if they uh, if there is any possibility to relocate the communities, like what happened in Louisiana, so they can prepare to combat this ineffectiveness of the government. And then this is also literally what we do. Then come uh comes this part of the social plan, which is the part where we um, well, mainly Beline Ramos, who is a lawyer audits the government, denounces what isn't being addressed to make visible the needs and the desires of the communities. And we do this in many ways. For example, we collaborate in journalistic research, international and local, to be able to denounce everything that the government is failing to do. We put into motion community projects, so they can have self-worth, for example, a community garden that they want to develop This comes as a result of our legal partnership. If they have plans, for example, if they want, if there's resources, because we have limits. But for example, we are rescuing a school here in Puerto Rico, as well as in the U.S., but here in Puerto Rico since 2016, before Maria until now, Over 300 schools have closed. They closed because supposedly they had to be sold because of the debt that the central government is in and the result of the schools being in disuse. So from there, we have communities that want to rescue those schools and make them into community projects. This is also done through the legal partnership. And if we can't do it, we make connections to other organizations, movements, and groups that allow us to give support to For instance, we made a community inventory in San Isidro of spaces in disuse, which is to say, after Maria, many people left the communities, emigrated, some returned to the Dominican Republic, and many immigrants went to the U.S. So the houses were abandoned, which is a big problem here, having abandoned houses. So what we did, along with another organization, which is dedicated to this, was make an inventory of spaces in this use to be able to generate a community plan towards this goal. This kind of activities that we do, which isn't the traditional form of practice in law, it is work more tied to advocacy to a certain extent because we also accompany the leaders, the majority of which are women, lideresas, those who were thrown aside in the process of recuperation in Puerto Rico. We accompanied them in talking to representatives, to senators, with the heads of government agencies to present them requests and propose new work in collaboration with the committees and with us. And we also do orientations and community meetings to address needs that the community has. One of the issues, something which has also happened in the US, here in Puerto Rico, they have announced, and the Center for Inves- Investigative Journalism has brought this up with various governmental agencies, that there wasn't access to information. In situations like this one, of disaster, the citizens have the right to receive information. So what has happened at the social level is that the agencies don't feel that, that it, it is their duty as ministers to give information to the citizens. Part of what we do then is inform the people, the residents, about the projects, the A programs, and to also give a voice to the right to access information. For example, to say something. And in this common space, using a term from legal partnership, in this common space, all the orientations, all the community meetings that we do always have the meaning of a speaking in community. Because what we want to promote, most of all, in extremely marginalized communities, marginalized, discriminated against, where there is a level of insecurity on the level of the world, if I were to say something, I would be deported. There is a lot of fear of talking because there is so much fear of speaking. We are trying to promote a space in the social, a space where the problems, those who are affected by them, can be dealt with. They can be talked about and we can look for solutions. This is very important to be able to generate this in a culture where the word is at risk, but there in that common space, it will be validated. In this legal partnership, we work with these focuses.
0: That is an excellent explanation, and it really clarifies things. There are two things that caught my attention in particular in everything you've just said. First, when you mention that there is a majority of women in the leadership of this work trying to represent and attend to and take care of the community. This reminds me of the episode that I made with Lucie Cantin, where we were talking about what it might mean to take responsibility. And there we had the example of. Teresa de Avila in the 16th century, where she was reorganizing the order of the Carmel. And here, it sounds like we have something akin to that, something of the order of women speaking, occupying positions of responsibility, instead of staying on the order of the complaint, saying the government isn't doing what it needs to be doing. Effectively, that there is a series of problems that you are articulating very well, and a series of failures on the part of these systems we're supposed to support the people that live in a certain place, in this case, Puerto Rico. But the response is action instead of just it's the first thing. The other is clarifying one thing for me. What you were explaining about how to generate, I think that there I understand a little more how psychoanalysis could enter. I'm going to ask you to clarify in the following questions how psychoanalysis operates in the Clinica Legal Psicologica, which was the inspiration for me to interview you. I'm interested in how you were able to find a manner to transmit analysis or a manner of putting something psychoanalytic into function in this kind of extreme situation. And I think that by saying that there's a lot A fear around speaking and fear of not being protected or validated by the law, or that things are so precarious that it's better not to speak, you're signaling toward that. You know, you're creating that space so that there exists a support for the word, which is still tied to the social link. I understand that it is a condition to later enter into speaking from somewhere outside of what can be said in community. Because we understand that there is a need to have censorship on the part of communities, right? So I'm I'm trying to make a distinction between speaking in community and, and the speech that doesn't fit into the community. Outside of the fear of what a government can censor in the political sense, there is still community censorship. But anyway, you're clarifying something very interesting to me. So why don't we move to how the clinical program functions?
1: Um, that's why we, nosotras, men. I say nosotras because we are all women. In the leaders or related committees, we usually identify a place in the community itself so that we can be able to offer clinic services, right? A place that is able to guarantee this setting, this clinical setting. And from there, sometimes we do it ourselves. We support the process of activating this space in the community so this work can be provided. If it cannot be provided in that space because we arrive at a chaotic time as it happens in certain neighborhoods, a lot of the time the clinic psychologist who has all of the psychologists who work in the clinic have a psychoanalytic formation that goes to the houses of the residents. And from there, they ask them to choose a space. The psychologists ask them for a space where they can talk without being interrupted, where they don't feel uncomfortable, right? A space that is safe. Something which also happens, and we have realized, if it isn't given in the resident's house then, then we change it to somewhere where there is a place in the community. Under a tree, in a soccer field, but it works. It is important that it is they, the users, the speakers, who decide where they can speak under conditions of confidentiality. So that is the first part. The second, another point of our work towards funding, our work in contrast with other groups, such as the group in Quebec, where funding comes from the government, our funding comes from foundations. I cannot talk about, because those who do this work are the psychologists in each one of the neighborhoods. And what I do is interview them at the end of the clinical program, interviews with a speaker, how it has been that they narrate a bit of their experience receiving, doing this work in the clinical program. One of the challenges that we have seen as every neighborhood has their own particular logic, often the family comes and says, hey, i like you to work with my husband since he has been going through so much. So we also have to tell them that we must start this process so that later they can go on. Because if there isn't the desire or the interest, we cannot begin, right? Because the person will not continue. We know this in psychoanalysis. So this is part of what is made possible, that the clinical setting provides the clinical program as such. Another one of the issues that uh, is that we, Iberia's from from case to case but we have residents we call them speakers that leave a session very emotionally or others that they go every two weeks or they can uh, or they call every two weeks or uh some once a month here in chronological terms we operate year by year so this idea of being like you or me in analysis for years doesn't necessarily happen in that way every year we close the clinic closes to be able to then compile all of this information to continue. And I do this work to take into account we know what we've accomplished in each one of the sessions and to look for funds. There are the psychologists, and this is important because it is part of the desire of the psychologists, the psychoanalysts. Obviously, the time of the program, the grant period isn't the same as that of the clinical work and the work that is being done inside the sessions. So a lot of the time, the psychologists continue doing the work as the case requires free. To clarify, the services are free, but I pay the psychologists. It's pay work, but they decide if the funding has run out to continue because the grants are not going to limit the work that is done within the session. So in this sense, there are periods where they continue to work because there is something that we have achieved, which is to create a culture within the neighborhood, that there is a place in the space to bring one's discontent, to talk about one's discontent. And we have been able to sustain it. There are people who have been doing this work for three or four years. The clinic hasn't even been around for four years, but we have speakers who have been with the psychologist for four years. Also, she decides, and every year we have addressed it again, the funds run out. OK, let me go find some in this way. It is a challenge. The 3A8. The Center for the Treatment of Young Psychotic Adults in Quebec doesn't have to deal with this. There is a project publicly supported by the government. That is not the protocol here. And also, I think we need to look at more at the long term. In this case, as the director of the clinic, I need to see how I can achieve this in a time of a lot of instability and economic crisis, how we can continue to sustain this work because there aren't other places that sustain this kind of work as it is sustaining the clinic. Jobs in Puerto Rico, for example, I have other colleagues who are psychoanalysts who work in public health programs in the capital, San Juan, they dissolved. They started to reduce funds. This is how you start to take away the sources of financing. And, and, And this subverts the clinic work a bit, right? Until the programs close. So in this way, this work has been sustained by those funds, which thankfully I have been able to obtain for this work. And I think that it is important because we arrived at a moment of chaos, and usually at these moments of chaos, people come and go. And so, for us, the logic of work is that we want to stay as long as they want us. And until now, the communities have been sustained because there is a desire on their part to continue the clinical work, and we have been able to communicate that that work that that work has that there is a movement on the inside. There is a movement in the psychic life of the individuals. And so the benefactors feel that they want to continue to. And declinations with their own desires sustain it. Mainly it is because of them that it continues.
0: Sometimes it is difficult and such a delicate situation and it also goes Beyond the conventions of the psychoanalytic frame, which is so much more thought about as part of a bourgeois life than a dramatically precarious situation. And so, yes, it's interesting to me how to seek out that space, to seek out a manner of sustaining something which is different, or that there is here a question of care and this has an etymological relationship with cure, the psychoanalytic cure. But we both know that cure, or the space that it occupies, that which the psychoanalyst cares for, is the subject of the unconscious, and not necessarily the same things that we think we have to take care of. So this setting or framework is an interesting point. It seems necessary to invent something, to create the condition so that the subject may speak. I like that you call them speakers, rather than patients. And that's all I wanted to simply highlight because it's different. Well, I want to. As you say, the speaker,
1: I think that we, opening the program, in the community, in the neighborhoods, I can't say, I'm not sure if I could say they are doing analysis. That which is certainly true is that the listening of the psychologist of the clinic, because of their psychoanalytic experience and training, it is a distinct form of listening compared to other therapeutic models. How can I tell you how it differs? I think it isn't the effect. I talk to the speakers at the end of every year. They are the ones who choose, of course, it varies from case to case. I ask them if they want to talk about their experience in the program. Something that comes out frequently in their work within the session using signifiers is that For the first time, they felt listened to. And some have had experience with psychologists and psychiatrists. So they themselves indicate that the psychologists are different. They see that she, the psychologist, with her questions, allows them to, I quote, get to the bottom of things. A speaker once told me that the doctor doesn't go into the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I found this expression very interesting. That formulation of the question. She meant that when she didn't go into the kitchen, she brought this to me because the doctor doesn't put her point of view in this space. And she was talking about, uh, for example, how her mother in (laughs) law Because uh, when one starts doing the work, the family often wants to get to work too. She started, then her mother-in-law, then her husband. She was with another psychologist, and that psychologist recommended medication. So she knew that what her mother-in-law needed was um, the husband of her mother-in-law died in the earthquake, what she needed Was a space to talk. So, in this sense, these speakers also tell me that that space, they call it that, which is interesting, allows them to see things from the past, but as as they are connected in the present or rather how the relation with their father this was a speaker a man who, who talked to me about this work we started after the earthquakes happened in Ponce this passed with the relation between him and his father how it is connected to the situation that he's living in present so in this way This space where one can be listened to, these interventions, these questions that they give, does something distinct in the clinic as opposed to others. In fact, them, the speakers, sometimes they tell me that the psychologists have a different style. They say that uh, they are prepared to listen to me like this. And I think something that we talk about within the team is that they are not there to resolve things or give advice to people or tell them what they need to do, which is something that other therapeutic models do. This is not their function. So that space that produces silence, and in a moment where sometimes the speaker wants coordinates, wants advice to be told how to resolve things, and that silence or that question that opens a space for the speaker to work or to navigate a dimension that is not conscious, of which they aren't conscious, that is what enables the speaker to go deeper in their, as they tell me, their thing. In fact, one of the speakers told me that she, uh, the psychologist, knows things about her that she had never told anyone, not even that she had told herself. Um, So in this way, that speaker, this was in Yauko, and she tells that during the process, during this process, her husband committed suicide and she entered the program uh, after. She said that she discovered things that she didn't even know about herself. So this full speech, that word as a new thing, comes as a result of that setting and from this manner of the psychologists based on their psychoanalytic training to open a space for these things, right? First appears the cause of the loss that comes with a social environmental event, but that is the origin from which lots of other things
0: come out. Yes, I really like how you respond to the question of what the psychoanalytic dimension means at the clinic and how it is distinguished from other modes of therapy and even from other programs, right? I thought about anonymous programs such as FAAA, things like that. They still do important work in their own way, but coming from a completely different viewpoint. So yeah, this gets my attention a lot. I'm wondering about the special kind of challenge it must be for these psychologists, given the fact that the speakers arrive saying, I need to resolve a really practical problem. So how do you get there to something deeper?
1: Yes, uh, they come in with all sorts of sufferings, saying, my husband killed himself. Her husband of 35 years dies, or it could be my leg. These are extremely terrible cases. I cannot forget this case in Juanica, which um, the psychologist, Veronica, told me about. She tells me that uh, he was an elderly gentleman who was in Juanica, and then came the earthquakes. The The wall where his bed was collapsed, and he was pinned. He tried to get out, but he stayed to get his dog, Uh, who was under the bed, and the patient was diabetic, and there weren't any centers for treatment, which existed before in Puerto Rico, near the neighborhoods, to offer health services prior to Maria. In the 19th, they were all sold. So there weren't any services for him, and they amputated the leg. So they come to the clinic with immediate losses, their husband, their cousins, their wife, their leg, they arrive in the midst of chaos, but that elaboration about those primary losses, which are the direct cause of events, allows them with the mode of listening of the psychologists and their questions, because they always tell me about the questions that they ask. This allows them in a certain way to process this grief, this loss. In fact, one of the speakers told me that they came there to find responses to their grief, to live through the grief for myself. This was one of the expressions uh, that she said in reference to the work that she went to. But these are only the immediate. After that comes the work on other events that left a mark on their life, which were gone during those first experiences that they processed, right? Yeah. In that experience of grief. And from there, for example, I interviewed this woman from the Dominican Republic to give a face to these cases and to the community in San Isidro. This is a very difficult one. She comes to the legal orientation. She brings her neighbor because she attempted to commit suicide. So we are there. During the interview, she told me that she was convinced that uh, she felt alone, abandoned, that nobody loved her. And at that moment, she was receiving some psychiatric treatment. And at that organization that treated her, the psychiatrist gave her medication and didn't address anything that was the cause of her pain. She told it to me like this, and they didn't ask her anything at all. They gave her the prescription. And in that space, she began with Dr. Garcia. This was uh, in San Isidro. There, that listening to her pain allowed her to address all the impressions on her life. Physical and psycho-emotional abuse from her husband, who was a Puerto Rican man, and also the institutional abuse she was uh, living in a shelter for five months and the heads of the Department of Housing, which is the state government, told her openly that the housing assistance was only for American citizens. And since she was from the Dominican Republic, she had no business being there. If she didn't have a house, she could go live on a bridge. So she arrives after all of this abuse and starts to elaborate on earlier abuses. And that is part of the clinic's aim. It opens a space so that they can process their immediate losses. But that leads to other events that have left a mark on their life. And in the questions from the psychologists, their silence too are what enables them to continue to elaborate.
0: Now I see. Yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. The. Um... And the next questions that I have is about the types of results that you're starting to see. Now that I understand your position of doing these interviews at the end of a year's work, and since you talk about some speakers who have been working for up to four years, can you say something about what has changed in that work? Yes, of course. For example, there have
1: been speakers who are not longer afraid to be alone, that can now take a shower because they are not longer afraid that the earthquake will come while they are showering, or they are not longer obsessively shaking the earthquake apps. That that happened at the beginning, right? The people were downloading the earthquake apps. So not longer feeling co-opted and paralyzed by this fear. Well, In this sense, it gives a greater degree of freedom to the person. And this affects, this was with a woman speaker, led her children to enter into the clinic program as well. Because they see the changes. They no longer see their mother glued to her phone. They see their mother able to sleep. They see their mother able to bathe herself. So in this sense, they see their mother without paralyzing fear. It isn't that she isn't afraid anymore. It's that it no longer paralyzes so in this sense, uh, this is what she also told me, that what she said to the psychologist, the doctor, as she called her, she hadn't even said to that. So I think discovering unknown dimensions in their lives, thinking about things that they had never been able to think about before, are important psychic moments that position this, these speakers in a different place. And this is what leads to other people in the neighborhood wanting to enter into this space. Unlike other clinical programs, which sometimes complain that people do not use them, we do not have this problem. The people come to the space where the word, as I said, can imply, we know that the word is also a risk, but in these cases, it is even a greater risk, and to be able to get them to speak. I think is the contribution that clinic is making.
0: Yes, yes, I love that. It's really amazing. And I also like your examples, such as insisting on speaking that goes beyond what is socially accepted, even for themselves or morally. This thing about saying, I haven't even said these things to God, sounded really good to me. So you were talking about something on a different level than something that you can say to yourself. Because as I was saying before, I see a difference between what is done in this clinic, even in a legal aspect. I mean, I guess I sense it uh, between its different components. It's not the same to speak in this intimate manner with a psychologist who is prepared to listen and to talk in community about problems that matter to the community as a whole. But these different parts are compatible as I'm understanding it. And it seems different than other ways of talking about care, right? For example, something one hears a lot here in the U.S. is care as an official term in the health care system. We talk about health care as what you look for with your health insurance. In the workplace, you often hear also take a day for self-care. Also, in popular culture, uh, I've been thinking about self-care as something that is much more focused on pleasure, ego. It seems basically very selfish. It isn't directed toward anything or anyone one else, for oneself against the rest of the world. That's what the care is for in a certain way. It it poses an opposition between the I and the non-I. But in psychoanalysis after Lacan, for example, as we have heard in the School of Quebec, there's a promotion of something else besides this opposition of the ego versus the world, and a work that doesn't arise from the ego at all, or from pleasure, or even for preservation. So this psychoanalysis, is interested more in articulating the unconscious subject to humanity beyond cultural or civilizational conventions. For instance, it enables this person you were mentioning in your example to do something other than satisfy their family. Patient may start out feeling that nobody loves her, but for psychoanalysis, the solution isn't to become the object of love that others want. It's about something completely different. Or for example, taking on one's grief can be an uncomfortable thing for those around one in a culture where one tries not to make those, you know, one tries not to remind others of sad things in the example you were offering. A series of limit analysis ruptures them. Nevertheless, care remains very important in the project that you are doing. And moreover, psychoanalysis would put it as care for the unconscious desire. That unconscious desire would be what is inherently human on a different level from that of culture and civilization. So I've heard you describe this project in terms of radical care, which got my attention. What would you say in order to describe this type of care that you're engaged with?
1: Well, this term radical care comes from a work, the work of some anthropologist colleagues who did a research project with healthcare workers, doctors, nurses. I was a part of this project, a participant because of the work I was doing after Maria. And what they observed was that health professionals generated practice of care towards others that exceeded their professional limit. They gave them food, <clears throat> water, medication. They went to their homes. And this specific act uh, and this affective disposition oriented the community in that context of chaos, led to an ethics of care that didn't pertain to any professional or moral code. It was, for many of these professionals, all these people who participated, called it a commitment to the care of others as an act of reciprocity and solidarity. We have, have a responsibility towards the human. And these acts of care towards others, as we've seen, generate a feeling of connection and of hope, especially in the midst of events with so much collapse. This goes beyond this, you know, this radical care goes beyond work, beyond the profession, the codes and ethics of the profession of the power institutions have over care and professional. Care. And this is why it's called radical because it exceeds those limits of professional training. And so here we bring in Apollon who talks about this care or this ethics or this subject of the unconscious that carries with it something for the human for humanity. And that is what I saw. For example, when I place myself for this was like my little revolutions because people in psychoanalysis often look at this with suspicion but for me the fact of seeing the complete collapse and the people responding by organizing themselves and responding on the level of what that historical moment that we live in Puerto Rico required I saw this and it gave me such a sense of purpose and meaning and we have shared this with other people so this radical act i think it came from the feeling of all these people join in the work to make something with a collapse in cows. and chaos and It wasn't something that was imposed by the institutions or professional ethics or codes. And that's where radicality comes from, that term. So much speaking is condensed in the meaning of the term commitment, which is not necessarily on the same page as a psychoanalysis, but it is something that moves the subject, which is what we talk about as the subject of desire.
0: Yeah, it sounds like there is a sensibility towards the fragility of life, which pushes us to act in favor of that vulnerable life, right?
1: Yes, that and also to not be immune. That's why we have this affective disposition of what one does when faced with another's pain. And many people dove in to give support and to do some, the people did something. That something allowed us to get rid of the governor in 2019, precisely because, and here comes in the radicality again, that we don't depend on them. There is an interconnection. There is an interdependence. There is a sense of purpose. Uh, But at the same time, Let us remember Puerto Rico is a colony, and that sense of helplessness that uh, we can't do it alone. When you see so much radicality and care, that isn't waiting on the government necessarily. We are responding with an act of idari. The sun, soul, gives light. That's
0: so beautiful. There's also, in addition to everything you were saying, the manner in which you are doing it at the Clinica Legal Psicológica is also making space for that care for desire, which enables victims to act, to be able to live in a way that isn't solely that of a victim. That's what it sounds like.
1: Yes. Oh, oh yes. They were affected by the potential of the human. I always think about the potential for that desire that mobilizes and pushes us in moments of great disaster, like war. Or, you know, you can see beauty. You can create something which positions one's life in that act of son, soul, and given, dar, son, give, Solidarity to give to someone. And I think in this neoliberal age in which there is so much self-absorption and so much shift towards oneself, it is important to see this shift towards the human. to connect. There is a responsibility towards the human. For me, that gives me hope. It's not that there is going to be a better world. It's that there is a better future to have something. We are constructing something different as opposed to that position of the victim, which the government makes us, that the federal government, the state government, the municipal government should do something because I have the right to what? to receive. No, it isn't about that. And that has a certain attention because on the one hand, it it opens space so that this human potential can create. And this is, um, I, I was able to see moments of great fragility, but at the same time, I saw how we worked as a collective to generate better conditions so that the human can achieve things. This is always intention in our clinic.
0: I like how you say it. Your remarks about the neoliberal mindset and a solidary possibility made me think about the pandemic. But I don't think we're prepared to go into that crisis in in this interview. Um, As we said, something that was hard for me to hear in the face of public health problems like those of that a pandemic implies or problems of violence and so like those that have happened here in the U.S. recently including in Buffalo this past summer. It's just frustrating. It fills me with despair to hear that so many people repeat like a mantra that it's necessary to act in one's self-interest and that that's how things will be fixed. I sense here a lack of solidarity. That signifier you have been stressing so much in its sun and giving dimensions. So, either in this sense,
1: it was important. And here comes the pressure with topic of individual right, opposed to everyone's right to health. And that we also saw how the government can invest in public health so that everyone can protect themselves. This idea that comes from neoliberalism that. Um, I can do it if I want to. No, if we all don't do it, we can't get out of the pandemic. And of course, there have been cycles and cycles. But the work of saving ourselves was collect. Of course, the major difference that I have seen in the communities is that life drive that united us, that united us in Puerto Rico to work on those immediate needs. Well, in the pandemic, we didn't have. During that pandemic, there were many suicides. Many people. In crisis, precisely because that community space promoted things, it generated things, it led to projects. And this, on the one hand, allowed them to pursue their lives, and on the other hand, like in the case of the clinic, it opened the space for that subject in solitude to process this. But that didn't happen during the pandemic. It was very difficult for us to be able to continue that work through the pandemic.
0: So listen, as my last question, we could continue with desire as a position with respect to our lives in the lives of others, which determines in the future as well. But the question goes more in the direction of different things that can give rise to activism. This, as we have been talking about the origin of whatever pain, whatever situation, whatever position, which is very psychoanalytic, in activism, it can have very different origins. And an origin can be idealist-centered in a notion of what one should do in the superego and the demands and dissatisfaction that we have internalized throughout our lives. You know, finally, it's about finding a solution sometimes and something that we do to deal with what we call in psychoanalysis, the lack in language. Attempt to deal with the lack in language is more like a patch, as Freud had said, as a response to the crisis in psychosis. A delusion can be a patch as well as any other kind of solution, including being an activist. This can be a patch to cover over that lack in language to a certain degree. So putting this on the table and knowing that there is important activist work happening at the Clinica Legal Psicologica, what would you like to say about the position that you're occupying, which is to say, how do you hold a space for unconscious desire in this project as you carry it out?
1: Look, for me, creating the clinic, now I look at it from a a different perspective (laughs) that Yes, came from my desire. I feel like it's an inheritance that I'm passing on to humanity. It's not mine anymore. It belongs to many people for whom we are working and creating a space for the unconscious in order. The psychologists in that space, in the neighborhood, in that little park, in the soccer stadium, in the home, on the porch, they are opening space. And I think that as they are opening spaces, they are mobilizing, provoking movement in the interior psychic space Of the people. I think something that uh, enables us to keep this space open is that we are all in analysis. The psychologists are in analysis, they are in psychoanalytic training in various schools of psychoanalysis. And so we share this theoretical framework, a horizon whose goal is to open space for the unconscious. All that is there. And that is what is put into play in those neighborhoods. But it's not only the psychologist, but the lawyer and the social work are also in analysis. So in this sense, uh, within this framework, allows us to have a common man. And it avoids, not completely, but allows to avoid imaginary arguments and narcissism between these small differences. The fact that each one of us possessing something in ourselves, this allows the project to move forward. The work of community advocacy is difficult and draining work. The space of financing and reporting and advocating, because the government doesn't do its job, doesn't comply with its ministerial duty, so it's difficult. And as we are in analysis, that allows, in a certain way, when we see that we are exceeding our limits and that we are not going to be able to repair it in language, that we are not going to repair the law, then at that moment we pass. And there we start to rethink as a team, what is what we are doing? What is our function in this context? And what do we want to bring to our country from humanity? That question is there. And like all humans, a moment when we are outraged and we throw ourselves at something, we are working and we ask each other questions which are able to give us limits. And at least for me, the act, uh, the effective uh, intensity to make change is less each time. It doesn't come out automatically like it did before. So that question to circulate is raised among ourselves. And of course, the clinical psychologists don't feel as called to do this because their job is different. It is in the social scene, which is within the framework of civilization. It is there that everything that we who feel called to do something with this failure of language, to do something to repair it, it is there that analysis has processed our trauma.
0: Yeah, that sounds fundamental and also impressive. I I mean, it's very impressive that everyone is in analysis, even those who aren't psychologists.
1: The psychologists you <laughs> I interview them, and if they aren't in analysis, then they don't join the clinic. That, for me, is important to preserve the work, the perspective, the integrity of the project. In the case of the lawyers and social workers, in the discourse and the work that goes on inside the clinic, it was then that they started to consider other moves. And from there, they enter into analysis. It's not like I'm saying to them, go to analysis. (laughs) It's because they see something happening within us, and that also provoked a desire in them. That was, that helps
0: also. Yes, that's wonderful. I just want to highlight that difference that so much of what we can infuriate us and awaken a feeling of of injustice and an impulse toward resolving it to intervene and do what needs to be done. And that is also where we can lose the space necessary to understand that the others are also subjects to give the other the possibility of acting, not only to solve others' problems.
1: For me, analysis has helped a great deal because before, I felt guilty, that I assumed that I needed it to do something. I always felt called to do something. And each time I feel that. Obviously, also with the communities as well, that I need to be respectful. You're feeling that you have to do something. That moment was very policy very felt. that I am going to able to do it all. And it isn't like that. So in that sense, this has allowed me to see that, to slow down, open space, literally, and to not act to such an extent that it opens to space so that others can also do it. And that is also part of this respect for humanity.
0: Yeah, completely. Well, it has been truly a pleasure to listen to you, Patricia, and talk with you. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for your questions and for making me think as well, because the questions force one to think about.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Thank you. So listen, as we are wrapping up, I also hope that you can let the audience know about the podcast that you are going to have and that it shares part of its name with this one, since it's called La Otra Escena, The other scene in Spanish. The other scene. Yeah. So I hope that others can listen to it too. To listen to you, that would be great. Do you want to say anything else about the project or is it too early on? The hope is to be
1: able to put these two tensions in dialogue that I have brought up here. On the one hand, the scene of the social, the the work of activism. And on the other hand, the work that official discourse, the context of rebuilding, the context of the communities that are often stigmatized to view them from the other scene, which is what comes out the community. That other radical, discourse, rebellious, which also comes from the unconscious, because our clinical work also allow us to formulate other stories which contrast with the scene of the social. That condenses something from these four years of work.
0: Excellent. So I really look forward to listening to it. Thank you. So we're going to say goodbye here.